Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. My name is Andrea Schwartz. Today is April 29th, 2020, and I am joined by my co-host, Steve Macias. Hello, Steve. Hey there, Andrea. How are you? Well, good. And I think that um, maybe some of the frustration that a lot of us are feeling after six weeks of asking the question, do we have to stay in our houses and not go out? But rather than answer that particular question, which we may get into, the question that I'm posing today is this. Do regulations make us safer? Mm. And I guess there's another question behind there is, are we justified in all the different regulations we come up with from the state, from the city, from the Board of Education, planning codes? I mean, where people really surrounded by regulations. Uh, you can't lay your head down on the pillow at night without having first removed that regulated label that says, do not remove except under penalty <laughs> of law by original owner. So regulations kind of surround us. Right. And I think it was Dr. Rushduni in his third volume of the Institutes that made the observation that some people will say, oh, the Bible is just so full of laws. How could you possibly know them all? And yet, if you counted up the laws in the scripture, they would either be 613 or 620, depending on how you counted them. But 620 laws are things you could pretty well learn in a lifetime, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, within the realm of learning to read. I think there are just a few hundred phonemes that students and kids memorize you know before they're the age of six or seven uh, so memorizing a few hundred laws uh, would be comparable to that uh, and so you could expect a child to to understand the whole breadth or, or at least the list component of the law according to the bible and then of course there's the two great commandments and under those come the ten commandments and the rest of the laws are case laws which then would apply to people at different eras. So I have never encountered your ox. I've been to your house. I don't see your ox, but I have seen your van. And so um, maybe I would have to amend the understanding of, okay, what did the ox or the donkey, I guess the donkey would be more like your van, but I'd have to amend, okay, so if whatever the laws that restricted or said certain things applied, to either your means of transportation or your work tools would apply today to someone's vehicle or somebody's tools of the trade, their their toolbox, things like that. So it's not as though these laws couldn't be learned. That's right. And I think uh, the really point of the Old Testament law, and you say the great two, is that God embeds the law and encapsulates it in more than just a long list of 600, those 600 some odd laws are the individual case jurisdictions. You know, so elaborating on the more simplified versions. Uh, 
of course, the Lord, our, our Lord says that there are two great commandments, but those two great commandments and how we you know, love the Lord, our God and love our neighbor are explained in the 10 commandments. So there really are only two laws, but if you want to understand those two laws, then here are the explanation. These first bit of the laws, how you love God, these first, the second part of the 10 commandments, how you love your neighbor. And then the various case laws that you see throughout the Pentateuch are the explanation of how to apply those 10 laws. Um, so really it's as simple as these two things, love God and love your neighbor, uh, but it's as applicable, it's as relevant as to bring it down to these 600 laws that apply literally to every area of life. And all God needed was a few hundred to explain how his way applies to every institution in every sphere of life. And of course, what makes God's law different than any other law, be it family law, church law, state law, the law of a particular trade or business or school, is that law is valid if it comports and complies and is in keeping with God's law. So in the account in the book of Acts about the apostles saying, we must obey God rather than man, they weren't saying, we're going to be lawless and we will not follow any law, but they certainly knew that they couldn't comply with a law that went against God's law. That's right. And I think part of our problem is, as a culture, we have separated out uh, law or rules or even the idea of rights as this outside thing, that there is this other concept detached from the reality that is law and that it can be changed or that it fits for a certain time or certain people. But what God explains is that his rules or his order, his structure, what we describe as his law is merely and wholly, that's with a W, a wholly a reflection of his nature. And so when God puts his image on man, or when God puts his image in creation, that natural reality is subject to his natural laws, right? His natural order of things, gravity, entropy, all of the natural sciences reflect the laws of the nature's creator. And so when we come to interpersonal relationships, how we should treat our neighbor, how we should treat their property rights, their human rights, their right to live, not to steal, not to slander them, those laws are a reflection of the lawgiver, of the creator. And so in the same way, science makes sense because it reflects the God of order who made nature. Our civil code throughout the Mosaic system makes sense because this is how God's nature is reflected in human relationships. And the book of Romans makes it really clear. We all know right and wrong it's just that those of us without the Holy Spirit who has had us be born again or transformed us, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not even like the law of God is something so foreign to people. It actually is embedded within us. And because of sin, we fight it. Uh, I always would make this analogy. You don't have to teach children to hide their sin. They just sort of do that naturally. Why do they do that? Well, because they know taking the cookie out of the cookie jar without permission is wrong. How do you know that they know it's wrong? They don't flaunt it. They don't say, hey, look, I just took the cookie out of the cookie jar. 
they hide the fact. And then when asked about it, they will often deny it, right? So mankind knows God's law and violates it. And that's something you cannot say for state regulations because I think whatever the amount is on a yearly basis of state and civil regulations, nobody could keep up with that. Whereas the Bible is a book that you could carry in your hand. Can you imagine what the book would look like of all the city, county, state, and federal regulations? It would not look like a book at all. It would be libraries upon libraries. It would be an endless hard drive of additions and uh, modifications of subpoints, and you would find to a great degree that lots of these these legal codes you see that county, city, <laughs> state, federal would not only be inescapably large, but they would contradict each other. The laws in one jurisdiction, uh, whether it was the building department, would have conflict with the other ones, the planning department. They would not comport with each other. One of the things that really subverts the authority of the Bible in many people's minds is the mistaken notion that the Bible somehow contradicts itself. People will say things like the law says things about mixing fabrics or eating certain kinds of meat or marrying outside of your tribe. And they point to these contradictions as somehow undermining the authority of the scripture. Now, as good Christians, we say these are not contradictions, that they can easily be explained. But that's not the case when we talk about the regulations or the legal code of man's law. Uh, there are so many contradictions, so many ways that they're unjust and intentionally put up. So yet we as modern 21st century thinkers somehow submit to this chaotic and schizophrenic order as, quote, the law. So when we hide behind or try to take solace in regulations, and we don't look at regulations in terms of higher law. So let's just take the law of the United States of America. The First Amendment to our Constitution said, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Well, we've got all these people being told they can't go to church. Why? Not even because the law was passed, which the Constitution says Congress cannot do, but because some elected officials, governors, mayors, county supervisors said, we say you can't do that. And people say, okay, well, they said we can't and we can't, but they never asked themselves the question, by what authority? And as Christians asking the question, does this comport with God's law? Does this comport with the Constitution of the United States? And when you don't ask those questions, then you become very easy to lead around by the nose. That's right. Well, and even when you do ask those questions, some people go into that question asking the wrong things. Um, we love our folks who love the United States Constitution. Uh, Dr. Rushton, he's written a great number of, of books on America's founding and, and really the Christian origins of our government. But one of the strange things that happens, and even in Christian circles, is when we begin to talk about law and regulation, we begin misplacing the source of authority. So, for example, people will say, um, the government of the people 
the people get to decide. They have this enshrined ideal of democracy that we have a social contract or a social idea of what is good and what is right. That we can vote for new laws. And while some of those have a a little bit of truth in them, what they give away is the idea that law is not a means by which we produce life, liberty, and property, but rather. Because we are life, made in the image of God, because we have liberty, freedom given to us by God, and because we can own property, as the inverse of the commandment "Thou shalt not steal" teaches, then we must have law to defend those God-given rights. And so, when we discuss regulations, the starting point should be: okay, we want to protect these important things. Law is a means to protect what God gave. Therefore, we should protect them in the ways, the sanctions, the laws by which God has described in His Word. So, I asked the question at the outset: Do regulations make us safer? We've really talked about our regulations in、um, agreement with God's law or the Constitution. But by their very nature, do regulations make us safer? I mean, can you even say they make us safer and say, "Okay, well, we'll have that trade-off"? You know, we'll be safer. But do they actually make you safer? Right, and I think one of the great examples that people like to go to is they talk about Sinclair and the Jungle, the the book that kind of talked about the meatpacking industry and brought in the idea of food safety standards and the regulation of Uh, the idea of human consumption of goods and the government or the state's role, role in regulating how we eat, what we eat, the standards of production, and what's largely missing from that kind of discussion is those regulations have been passed down to us through the institutions like the FDA, and while we're not getting sick from eating rancid or spoiled meat, the general welfare. Of Americans in the last century or the last fifty years has become worse and worse. We have the greatest incidence of heart disease, of、uh, obesity, of general mishealth.、Uh, our diets are misaligned, and so somehow, even with the most regulation and the whole span of human history of what we eat, how it's made, how it's produced, we aren't any healthier as a people today. And I think the bottom line is, regulations do not create an internal change. Only the Holy Spirit creates the internal change. And so we have regulations that basically get interpreted to mean, this is what I can or I can't do in order not to get caught. Not this is what I can or can't do because it's wrong, and it's wrong because God says it's wrong. And those are very different things. That's right. And what's really significant, I'm glad you used the the phrase "internal," is because the gospel bears into the internal and external life. It causes、uh, the the law bears on the conscience and on the actions. Regulation from the state or from any organization on the outside can only regulate what you physically do with your hands.、Uh, There is no power of change by the state. There's only the threat of the sword. And so, just like you, you've just mentioned, the state can't change our behavior. They can only punish us when we do things that it doesn't like. So it encourages us to subvert around it. 
Right. So, I mean, a great example would be in order to drive, you need a driver's license. And I guess that's why we have safe drivers, that nobody is an unsafe driver because they're licensed. And those who aren't licensed, then they're automatically going to be unsafe. No, if you really look at it, the whole process of getting a driver's license is a tax in order to drive. The same way that the regulation you must have a license to cut people's hair or sell them a vehicle or any number of other things. It's not that I get a better haircut because the person has a license. It's not that the car salesman doesn't cheat me because he has a license. Because, like I said before, it doesn't change the internal man that says, I can't do this to, I can't cheat this customer because it would be wrong to do so. And so um, I think in a lot of ways, regulations might make us unsafer. Well, I think in your example, it's certainly true. Not only do driver's licenses not provide any regulation. Of course, you have to go through a driving test, but we all know that that's sort of a joke. But driver's licenses, especially in the last 50 years, have been coupled with state-mandated insurance policies that are backed by government regulators. And what has actually happened is <laughs> that our driving has actually become less safe uh, under the bubble of insurance protections that are mandated. Why should I be careful if I don't have an individual responsibility in whatever I do with my actions? What insurance mandates which are largely subsidized by government regulation has done is create a situation where the 19 year old is allowed to drive the $80,000 BMW because he's got insurance and he can behave like a 19 year old. And if he crashes it, the insurance pays for it. And so the actual bearing of law or regulation or uh, consequence is separated from the individual person. And whenever you see that happening in relationships, when the, actual teeth or the sanction of the law aren't applied to the individual, it actually encourages the opposite of what that regulation wanted to do. And so it really brings about the lack of self-governing. And in the Christian mindset with a biblical worldview, since we recognize the various spheres, we recognize the sphere of the family, the sphere of the church, the sphere of the civil order, None of that works without, without self-governing individuals, with the recognition that says that God is watching me. Well, nowadays, everybody's concerned that Big Brother is watching us with cameras and the fact that we could be tracked with our cell phones. But isn't it remarkable that the person who always sees us is often, is often not considered at all? Well, and I think that gets back to the idea and the purpose of the biblical law. And it, there's a trope in our day and age that looks at the story of Christ, the story of Jesus, and can see the law keepers. It can see the regulators of the temple of Christ's day, which were certainly the Pharisees. And they did exactly the same bureaucratic behavior that we see of the state today. The Jews of the first century, of the second temple, there in the temple and with their behavior, did not live the law of God. In fact, they had broken the law of God away from daily life and mechanicized it into 
all of these sub-laws, right? They've, they've added new things. And this is how uh, they describe their tithing of their tithes and all of these extra behaviors that they had regulated the law for the sake of their own pharisaical system. Now, the problem with that is that it doesn't produce righteous people. It doesn't bring about the intention of God. It just brings about more laws. That's why Christ is able to call the scribes and the Pharisees white sepulchers. You know, they had a regulation, but they were dead. It didn't affect who they were. This is how he could say to those who had all of these regulations, unless your righteousness exceeds these people, the people with all of these extra laws, you will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. There is a, a sense in which the idea of lawfulness or obeying God's law is at war with the idea of regulation or bureaucratic rule according to man's law. And these two can only be reconciled through the grace of Christ, who says, I bring not a burden, but my yoke is easy, because he gives you the means by which to live in his law rather than to live under the yoke of bureaucratic law. And this is where education becomes the basis on which you're going to build a society. If you build a society on statist education, governed by the religion of humanism, you're going to produce people who follow orders, follow regulations. And because they're so used to being told this is the way it is and making sure that you eliminate any reference to Jesus Christ or the God of the Bible, we're not going to allow that because just a little bit of that messes up the whole humanistic religious view. But Christian education isn't about regulating children. We want children to think like Christians, speak like Christians, and act like Christians. And, and how are they going to do that? Because they're afraid of mom and dad saying, if you, don't, if you don't do what I say, this is the punishment. Well, sometimes there do need to be penalties, but when we teach people the need for Christ, when we teach people that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is only and will always be Jesus Christ, then we're developing in these children and then adults this awareness of the fact that the author of life is the authority that all other junior authorities must comport with. And that's where we get the idea that any law that isn't in keeping with God's law is in essence an unjust law. Right. And there was a, a rally call of the Reformation that said, you know, disobedience to ungodly laws is faithfulness to God. You know, disobedience to tyrants is faithfulness to God. There is this sense in which that because the origin of your laws is your God, if you continue to serve false laws, then you are in essence serving a false God. And that's really what Christians need to think about when they look at the federal register or the state regulatory environment or the, the county ordinance that comes down on quarantine or do not offer business is not so much is, is there a, a case law that says we should be quarantined or is there a case law that says we should do X, Y, and Z, but rather where is the spirit of this law? Where is the origin and authority 
behind this law. And what we see for the great majority of new legislation that comes down uh, in even the most conservative of states is that the source of their authority is man and their own personal regulation, greed, profit, and well-being. And so they are pushing down new laws, not for the sake of obeying God and protecting his people, not for the sake of reflecting the Ten Commandments in our life, but rather for supporting the authority of man's law over God's law. Exactly. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the spirit of the law does not conflict with the letter of the law or the word of God. And I believe liberty is something that has fallen out of practice in terms of teaching it. You know, I was thinking this would be a great time to having people memorize Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. That is not the sentiment of the modern man. The modern man is give me security so I don't have to die. Whether or <laughs> not the quarantine or all these regulations are going to prevent it. And then as soon as you realize that it's not above those who will usurp other people's jurisdictional authority to cook the books and make something appear quite contrary than it does, is it any wonder that God has given us this opportunity to relook at everything and say, how does this practice comport with God's law? Why have we tolerated things that God's word is explicit in terms of it's wrong, it's an abomination? You see, I, I think instead of blaming the statists, we should look at the statists as our version of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Amorites, who God is allowing to dominate and tyrannize us until we turn to him. And the way we turn to him is, as the Bible says, by faith. St. Paul in the book of Romans says that the righteous shall live by faith. And it's often misunderstood what it means to, to live in faith. And I think regulation is a good example of the opposite of living by faith. Uh, when, when people regulate the environment, the amount of emissions that come out of your car, the amount of inches you're allowed to raise your fence, the color you're allowed to paint your house, what they're trying to do by regulation is predestinate the outcomes. Uh, government regulations are morality. They're trying to prevent certain behaviors. Government regulations are a type of capital consumption where they want to regulate the outcomes of who's rich and who is poor. But the righteous say we live by faith. It's only in the blessing of God's providence that we get the outcomes that God promises. Yet the spirit of regulation is if we just do what this man says, we will get X, Y, and Z outcomes. Or to put it a different way, the spirit of regulation is to say, we can't leave this to faith. We can't leave this to God's hand. Man must, therefore, create the forms and structures according to our thinking that would give us the outcomes that we really want, rather than trusting in his providence. And those who would regulate us to tyrannize us, to control us, usually succeed with the weapon of fear. And isn't it interesting that the scripture says, if you wish to be wise, 
you start with fearing the Lord, not mm. fearing what happens if I don't wear my mask, not fearing what happens if I open my pet salon so I can, you know, give dogs a bath and cut their hair. You see, by the time we have become so concerned with getting a slap on the hand, as opposed to being concerned about justice, then in a lot of ways, we get what we deserve. And that's right. And the things that we get and the things that we deserve point to our dependence on that particular institution. Uh, as we succumb or lower ourselves, debase our culture to man's law, we see things getting worse and worse. Things devolve when they're under the authority of pagan rulers, when they're under the authority of man's law. Things can only be built and last if they're under the authority of God's law. And so the question about do regulations help or hurt, do they make things better or worse, uh, let's think of the most expansive regulations that have been done in the last 50 years. Uh, Richard Nixon here in the United States created the Environmental Protection Agency. They ushered in a whole new realm of uh, idea of national parks. They brought in carbon emission standards. They started regulating away uh, fuel efficiency, how much gas you're allowed to use. And here we are just 60 years later, and our culture, instead of changing, we're, no long, we're not a people now that hugs the earth. We're not a people that have no waste. We're not a people that respect nature. Instead, we are all the worse a consumer culture destroying the planet, yet we have this moral band-aid where we feel like we've done something good. The regulation tells us, oh yeah, you're doing your part. You're recycling, even though your recycling is actually worse for the environment. Oh yes, you're using a paper straw, even though you're at a restaurant that uses more electricity or gas than it took <laughs> to produce that uh, plastic straw. You know, this idea of morality and regulation has always been a ruse. And instead of recognizing that God's regulation provided a standard, instead we put our hope in another institution. And the result is today that we have now created systems that give this sense of virtue signaling that I'm good for the environment because I do X, Y, and Z as an environmentalist. Meanwhile, large corporations have not helped the environment, but now have used the regulations to buy carbon credits to, to offset their environmental impact. And here we are in the year 2020 with pollution just as bad as it ever was, with vehicles producing the same amount of emissions as we were 60 years ago, and entire countries now producing more carbon than were ever done during the reign of Richard Nixon. Now, some could say maybe regulations didn't go far enough, but the reality is the regulation always does this and does the exact opposite of what the intended moral cause was because it's outside of the authority of that government agency to legislate here in this realm. And a lot of these government agencies basically have been given authority that constitutionally belong to the legislatures, but they do it that way because they have this whole army and team of people that can make it up as they go along. I remember my son, who's now a grown man, but when he was in his teens, 
He was always entrepreneurial and he was looking for ways to make money. And he decided he was going to have a t-shirt business and he found a way that he could make t-shirts. So he started doing it. And somebody brought up to him that, you know, if you want to sell at flea markets or whatever, you need to get a business license. So his dad and I thought, okay, this is good education. He's not going to get rich off making t-shirts himself, but let's let him get a feel for what it would be like. So he called up and he talked to the people at our local city, you know, that would the agency or the, the, the department that would do it. And they gave him a piece of information. And I was like, um, I don't think that's right. And so I called up and asked the same question and I got a different answer. And then I explained to the woman who I was speaking to. And I said, you know, my son called up yesterday. I called up today. And we got two entirely different answers. And she said, oh, yeah, if you call tomorrow, you could get a third one. In other words, <laughs> this was just at the whim of somebody deciding what that regulation meant and giving an answer. In California, for the last five years, we have not been able to use plastic bags. And we have been encouraged to bring our own bags. Well, now... You can't walk into a grocery store with your own bags because someone has determined that that very thing may have spread the coronavirus because people don't wash out their bags. And so now we're back to them giving you bags. But how long will that be before there are no bags at all and you can only take enough out that you can carry and they take away the carts or who knows what? But the thing about regulations is it can be done at the whim of someone who has an agenda other than how am I faring before God? Yes. And such is the case because we believe that human nature is impaired, destroyed, <laughs> depraved because of sin. Uh, that idea of regulation will always also be effective. Who gets to make the, reg the regulation? Those who have the power. And so this is, when you talk about employment and jobs, really the most dangerous place for regulation at all. Uh, in our day and age, there's a, a movement across the nation to have a national federal minimum wage to regulate the cost of minimum wage to being $15 an hour across the board, whether you work at uh, Wendy's or Home Depot, you wouldn't make less than that. And the biggest advocate for this type of wage regulation is the largest, one of the largest employers in the United States, the Walmart Corporation. Those people at Walmart and Sam's Club love the idea of minimum wage because what it would essentially do is force every small business that competes with Walmart out of business. Walmart can afford to absorb the cost of a $15 minimum wage because they control such a large portion of the market. In fact, the $15 minimum wage would be a huge benefit to them because now all of their competitive businesses in the community, whether it's a, a local uh, co-op or an independent grocery store or a family-run business, what they'll have to do is fire the employees that they've already hired or close up the shop because they wouldn't be able to make the books balance at $15 an hour. Now, personally, I think because I live in the city of Los Altos, $15 an hour would be great because our minimum wage here is almost 17 But the idea of minimum wage regulation, what it does has consequences beyond just that one decided outcome. And the great danger is when we as Christians hand the power over to the state 
in realms where they are not granted or enumerated that power, they're not enumerated by the constitution, they're not enumerated by the law of God, then you give them license to take over realms of your life that you'll never get back. And it's not a balance of power. It's where the centralization of influence and money happens takes away your rights because these regulations are written by those people. And how I actually came up with this question is seeing the uproar on social media, people talking about the Harvard professor who says that homeschooling is dangerous because it gives parents authoritarian power or other studies that points out to the fact that people who are homeschooled are not socialized or whatever the excuse is given. Could it be that since the majority of people who homeschool are also people who believe the Bible, who also are knowledgeable about the constitution that even understand the concept of enumerated powers. Could it be that what we really want to do is make sure people don't learn how to think. And so when people say to me, what should we do? What if they start, you know, regulating homeschooling? Well, I'm not sure that we have a Dr. Rush Dooney in our midst as an individual who can do what he did to go around and, and speak in court cases, but we have his material. We have his legacy. So my answer is become versed in the law of God, become versed in the law of the country and the law of your state, and you become that apologist who goes and helps the families who are being harassed because they homeschool. You see, the only way they can succeed is if people don't know the truth. And the truth is what makes you free. Amen. Amen. Well, and the, the great myth that's revealed in this kind of Harvard situation is that higher education is at war with the homeschool family. The higher education is at war with the Christian school family. And there's a complete misalignment with the goals. Whether you're part of a, a classical conversations co-op or you teach your kids at home using a Becca or you're free-ranging your kids with some other homemade curriculum, your goal is not that your child would think in terms of regulation. You don't want your kid to think in terms of test scores and, and uh, regulatory mindset. You want your kid to think as an independent learner. You want them to learn how to learn. But what you see in all of these institutions of higher learning is that they have narrowed their focus down to education is when you become a thinker who thinks like us. Education is when you adopt our worldview. And so the com competition of regulation worldview versus the Christian worldview is not so much that one person has power and one doesn't, but that we have completely different goals. And so Christian parents need to rethink, is my goal for my son in higher education to be a part of their system? Or maybe there's something else for our family than the Harvard of the world. Maybe we should stop taking what the Harvard's of the world seriously and go back to God's standard. Exactly. That's why one of the best ways to get started and think in these terms, if you're not acclimated or to help someone else who is beginning to express distress over what's taking place 
steer them to Rashtuni's Law and Liberty, because in that very short book, he puts together all the aspects that are a threat to people obeying God. The, beyond Law and Liberty, if you get to Dr. Rashtuni's philosophy of education, you, you can see that he's recognized the downward trend of American education for the last two generations. And when we talk about regulation, there's no more regulated industry than American education. And so if, you, if you've heard what we've said for the last 30 minutes and said, okay, if regulation creates worse results and education is heavily regulated, meaning that there are local and state and federal regulators going in and establishing and tweaking a curriculum, regulating it to death, what kind of output is that going to give you? Uh, consider what's happened in the public school. If the public school was not subsidized, financed, and paid for by conscriptatory taxes, then it would be a business that failed long ago because the output of these institutions have been abysmal. Regulation in education has led to worse education. And so the, the great high point of them is Harvard. That's the, where the, the rivers of sewage converge, and we should expect more criticism of places like Harvard, of the Christian worldview, of homeschooling, of these independent-minded ways of thinking about education and freedom. You know why? Because homeschooling and sending children to a Christian school doesn't fall under the category of compulsion. You see, we call the laws that we have compulsory education laws, which says you must have your child here. Well, you must have your child here is an awful lot like you must stay home now is an awful lot like we're going to inject this into your arm, which is an awful lot like you can't use this kind of material or you can't, as you put it earlier, have a fence higher than this. And maybe just maybe people, because of this sheltering in place and all the mandates that are coming out, will start asking the question, who says? Mm -hmm. And is that who someone we're obligated to listen to? And is that someone in agreement with God and his word or not? That's right. And come back to this. Who owns you? Does the state own you? No. Then how can they regulate your behavior? Does the state own your family? No. How can they regulate how you educate them? Does the state own your home? No. How can they regulate how you construct it? Does the state own your church? Well, then how can they regulate it? Why aren't we asking these basic questions instead of just bowing down to, well, the government said so? So hopefully you have some food for thought. I imagine that there may be some people who listen and maybe our conversation has rubbed you the wrong way. Don't let the conversation stop here. Feel free to get in touch and discuss it because the whole purpose of our podcast is to bring up the kinds of things that we hear people asking and then unearth those topics so that we find biblical roots. So here's the open invitation. Contact us out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I know Steve would, and I certainly would be happy to discuss things with you. Certainly so. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, listeners. Until next time. 
Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.